All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 152, Limited Time Offer. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Simon, Hormoz, and Tom for signing up already. Today, we begin with Northumbria. King Aethelred of Northumbria, son of Aethelwald Maul, was sitting the throne, having taken it from a man who claimed to be from the line of Ida. And initially, it seems that many people were quite happy with Aethelred, and were told that he was put in power with a great deal of pomp and circumstance. Then, shortly after he took the throne, someone tried to kill Elderman Aidwolf. The assassination failed, but it certainly was a strange event, and it had everyone looking over their shoulders for a bit. Three years later, two largely unknown Northumbrian nobles, Herdbert and Aethelbald, killed three other nobles, Aildwolf, not to be confused with Aidwolf, who escaped, Conniscliffa, and Edgar. Those are the primary facts. We don't know much about the assassins, Herdbert and Aethelbald, so we don't know if they had motives of their own. Further, no contemporary records indicate why the Eldermen were killed, or who, if anyone, ordered the killing. There are some complicating factors, though, and they include the fact that King Aethelred's family was new to the throne, and his own father was forced into religious life by the Northumbrian nobility. So depending on the political allegiance of the three slain Eldermen, the king might have had a motive to order their deaths. However, there were no less than five families killing each other over the throne, so Aethelred was hardly the only person who might have had a motive. And unfortunately, this was long before Sherlock Holmes. We didn't even have Inspector Clouseau, so it's unlikely that there was any hard evidence on who ordered the murders, or why they were carried out. Modern scholars seem to suspect that Aethelred was behind it, but the triple murder might have been a coincidence, and he might have had nothing to do with it. But it appears that the nobility was not eager to give him the benefit of the doubt. So soon after the murder of those three eldermen in 779, the upper classes made their move and deposed and exiled King Aethelred of Northumbria. We aren't given details on where he went, but I wonder if he went to Francia and to the court of Charlemagne. Anyway, now with Aethelred out of the way, they needed a new king. Aelfwald, the son of the murdered King Oswulf and grandson of the good King Aedbert, was ready, and he took the throne. It is awfully convenient that he was just sitting there and waiting in the wings, isn't it? But whatever, the Aetingas were back, so good times were here again for Northumbria. Though, as fun as the northern murder mysteries are, the real action was happening in the south, because on that same year, 779, we have the final charter from King Egbert II of Kent, which afterwards, he just vanishes from the record. And it isn't clear what's going on there, but his neighbors seem to be getting pretty rowdy at right about the same point. King Offa might have lost stature in Kent after losing at Otford, and it's entirely possible that Kent was independent following that fight. But that did not mean that Offa was down and out. Since he took the throne, Offa had been working to re-establish mercy and power in the south. He had brought the smaller kingdoms back under his control. 
and now was the time to retake the lands that he had lost during the Civil War. It wasn't all that long ago that Mercia dominated the Northern Thames, but after the death of King Ethelbald of Mercia, Wessex had annexed many of the villages on the southern border of Mercia, and that was just not sitting all that well with Offa. Further, the relationship between the two kingdoms was probably already getting a bit strained, as Mercia had brought Sussex, at least for a time, under its own umbrella, and Offa was growing in power. If King Chinnewulf of Wessex was smart, and it appears he was, he probably realized that the southern kingdoms might be dealing with another Mercian king in the model of Aethelbald, or Penda, and left unchecked, it could put West Saxon independence in threat. My personal guess is that a conflict between the two kings was inevitable, since their interests were directly opposed. And so even if Chinnewulf wasn't holding lands that Mercia considered theirs, and he was, this battle very well might have happened anyway. So in 779, following his defeat at Otford, but fresh off his victory against the kingdom of David, we're told that Offa and his Mercians marched south into the West Saxon territories. And at Bensington, the Mercian warbands under King Offa met King Chinnewulf and the men of Wessex. And the Mercians did what they do best. Offa was triumphant. It's not clear whether or not Chinnewulf recognized Offa as his overlord, or if he maintained his independence. But after the battle, the territory on the southern bank of the Avon was now Mercian, and Offa was fully exercising authority over the Thames Valley. Mercian-West Saxon relations were getting pretty uncomfortable at this point, and the fact that the Huessa were directly ruled by Offa within a few years probably was not helping things. Mercia was on the rise. Though not everything was peachy, Kent was still a bit of a problem. In particular, Archbishop Janbert of Canterbury was an issue, because it looks like he was beginning to mint his own coins like he was the Federal Reserve. Now, Offa had been minting coins in Mercia for quite some time, as had the King of East Anglia. So this wasn't a new game, but having the Archbishop muscle in likely ruffled some feathers. And let me explain why. To begin with, many scholars have suggested that the presence of East Anglian coinage, because they were minting coins, could be a sign of its independence. And while East Anglia and Mercia maintained relations, and they had increased their involvement for much of the late 8th century, the fact of the matter is that the presence of East Anglian coins through to the reign of King Ethelbert of East Anglia suggests that they might have been outside of Offa's sphere of influence into the 790s. So right there, that's two things, right? The first thing is that East Anglia might not be under Offa's thumb. But the other thing is that you see right here one of the reasons why these coins from Archbishop Jambert might have been a big deal. They might be a signal of independence. And that isn't going to make Offa very happy. But beyond that, the appearance of coins is one of the signs that we're entering a new phase in regnal power in England. As I mentioned in earlier episodes... While Offa wasn't the first king to produce coinage, he was among the first, and his coins are often described as the finest and most numerous of the period. But importantly, Offa, like Charlemagne, had designs on reforming the coinage in his kingdom. The pre-existing coins were pretty heavily debased thanks to unscrupulous moneyers, and if he could fix that issue, it would be a sign of Offa's power, as well as a sign that Mercia was ready to move into a more sophisticated economy. That was a pretty big deal. And get this, 
Some scholars have suggested that he beat Charlemagne to the punch, reforming his coinage first. And if that's true, maybe the Frankish reforms were inspired by Mercia. We talk about Charlemagne as an influencer rather than an influencee. However, that's far from the reality. He was actually always on the lookout for new ideas, and we see plenty of examples of where he brought new thinkers and concepts into Francia. This reform of the coinage might have been one of the ideas he picked up from his neighbors across the channel. And for good reason, it had a tremendous number of benefits. And once Offa's reforms began, it was his money that replaced the existing and debased coins all the way throughout England. With, of course, the exception of Northumbria, because that's just how they rolled. Now these coins were broader, thinner, and heavier than their predecessors. And in the early period, Offa's image appeared on them, and later on it was his name that was emphasized. And scholars typically agree that this was the starting point for the continuous use of currency in England. And that's a really important shift, because a working currency, and one that can be relied upon, will make trade easier, make it quicker, and also make it more attractive to foreign merchants. So, there's another reason why having an archbishop minting his own coins was a problem. This guy might screw up off his plans. And besides, this archbishop was using the Kentish Mint, which Offa probably wanted to have access to. It seems that there were mints in Kent, East Anglia, Hamwick, and London. There might have also been mints in York and possibly Sussex. But what I'm getting at is that they aren't exactly growing on trees. And moneyers also were in short supply. And actually, one of East Anglia's moneyers, Wilfred, ended up working for Offa later on. That's how rare they were. And now there was a moneyer and a mint that was not available to Offa. And instead, it was being used by an archbishop that was rather hostile to Mercia. That's not the best of news. There's another aspect here, which is that having your own coins was a major mark of prestige. By having Offa's name stamped onto a coin, everyone would know who he was, and they might also see a stylized version of his face on the coin. So everybody who was using that coin would be familiar with Offa. Now London was described even by Bede as an emporium, and people were already coming there from all over the known world. I mean, this was a major hub of trading and cultural life, and Offa's coins would have been in circulation and used in the markets. That likely reinforced Offa's awesome power amongst his contemporaries. In England, he would have been almost omnipresent and a literal symbol of wealth. And his name would even be familiar overseas, as his coins traveled. Not only that, but his queen, Chinathrith, was also on coins. And that right there is a massive deal. Women on coins is insanely rare in Europe. In fact, we have only three examples of women on coins from this period of the Middle Ages. And of those three, Queen Chinathrith's coins were the most numerous. That's huge. The Mercian royal family under Offa probably looked like rock stars. But they also had this archbishop doing the exact same thing. And so they weren't dominating the economic landscape in the same way. Speaking of economics... There are also issues with Jambert's coins in that regard as well. Like we spoke about in earlier episodes, the Carolingian kings like Charlemagne took a cut from the money that was created in their name. And considering how Mercia was developing, we have no reason to believe that Offa and others did any differently. 
So creating money would enhance Offa's wealth because he could keep a portion of the precious metals while the moneyer created the coins. But Jay and Bert was getting into the business. And so now, rather than everyone learning Offa's name, and rather than Offa getting a cut of the raw gold or silver, the Archbishop was getting it. So yeah, I really doubt that Offa was pleased with Archbishop Jambert making his own coins. Now, obviously, Offa had vastly more resources than the Archbishop, so his coins are far more numerous. In fact, the scale of Offa's coins is something to behold. While historians who specialize in coins in the Anglo-Saxon era rarely agree on anything, it's generally accepted that a moneyer during this period can make about 10,000 coins before he'd have to replace his die, basically the stamp that makes the coin. And when the die was replaced, it obviously would lead to a new type of coin, since no two dies were identical. Now, in a typical coin hoard, you're going to find between 5 and 45 different types of coins. Consequently, Looking at the types of coins that Offa had, there could have been between 2 million and 10 million of Offa's coins in circulation during his lifetime. That's a pretty strong indicator that by the end of Offa's reign, money was integral to the southern economy. Things were changing, and now we're starting to see exactly how powerful this Mercian king was becoming. But before we leave the subject of coinage, there is one coin of Offa's that's more famous than the rest. As you know, this was a period of increased trade and contact with the world. And while England wasn't always striking its own coins, money still did make it to the region. In particular, the gold coins of the Caliphate were in circulation in the West as a sort of unofficial currency. And that brings us to a very special coin that was minted in Offa's name. Across the center of the coin are Roman characters that read Offa Rex. Offa, King. And then, around the edge, are some rather intricate designs. Based upon its style, it's clear that the coin was struck in the style of the dinar, produced by Caliph al-Mansur in 774. However, the intricate designs on the edges were not mere decoration. They are Arabic script. The person who struck the coin likely knew no Arabic, and we can assume that because the script was improperly done. Instead, it looks like the moneyer was simply copying the dinar, and whether the duplication of the script was intentional or whether it was assumed to be simply decoration isn't known. But whatever the case, the script pretty clearly says, there's no God but Allah alone. That is pretty embarrassing for a Christian king. However, in Offa's defense, this might have been struck specifically for trade. For example, if Arabic traders required coinage of that sort. Or maybe it was struck as a gift. But whatever the case, it's one of the more amusing bits of archaeology to come out during this era. Anyway, the point of all of this is to tell you a few things. First, that England was becoming more sophisticated, with trade links that went all over the known world. Second, that Offa was behaving in the model of the Carolingian kings, rather than like some of his predecessors and he was working on advancing his kingdom into the modern era. And the third thing I'd like you to have learned is that the presence of coins struck in the name of Archbishop Jambert is not just some random fact that's useful only for trivia night at the pub. Frankly, if your bar trivia mentions Jambert, the quiz master is a sadist. Rather, the coins are vitally important because they give us a possible view into the political turmoil that was brewing in southern England in the late 8th century. Because, and I hope I'm not spoiling this, Jambert was an archbishop that was in the model of Wilfred. 
And now the guy seems to have been signaling his independence, building his prestige, and also developing quite the economic war chest. That would have been pretty troubling for Offa. Things were also in motion for the church up in the north as well. And this will likely be exciting for the Middle Ages education enthusiasts. Both of them. So yes, Gary and Steve were finally at the point where Alcuin enters the story. Alcuin was born into the Northumbrian upper classes in the 730s or so. We're told that his parents were related to at least one prominent member of society, and his family owned a church at Spurn Point. Beyond those sparse details, we don't know much about his family, other than the fact that they sent him to be raised by the religious community at the York Minster from an early age. There, Alcuin was taught by Archbishop Egbert of York, until he died in 766. And then Alcuin, who was probably in his 30s, worked with the new Archbishop, Aelbert of York. It was with Aelbert that Alcuin's education really began to take off. When the Archbishop traveled to the continent, Alcuin often went with him. It seems the two men were quite close, and I wonder if Alcuin was being groomed to take over the Archbishopric. In 780, Archbishop Aelbert died, and Alcuin inherited the Archbishop's books. Which would have been like inheriting a fortune, but it wasn't the same as an entire archbishopric, you know? But actually, books are something we haven't really talked about. The ability to read was rare due to the breakdown of the educational system in the West. However, even if you could read, finding things to read would be quite a problem. It's not like you could just go down to the public library. And think about everything that went into making a book. You needed a massive amount of parchment which was hard to get on its own since you needed a bunch of animal skin that was properly prepared. And then you needed leather and bindings, as well as the know-how to actually put it together. You need a bunch of ink, which isn't cheap either. And then you need to find a man of letters with enough time who is willing to copy the entire book by hand. So even the most modest of libraries would have been worth a fortune. And the truth of the matter is that many of the books would have been heavily decorated as well not just on the covering, but also with illustrations all throughout the manuscript. And that would have also added to the cost of production. These books would have been priceless. And they went to Alcuin. But if Aelbert was hoping the archbishopric would also go to Alcuin, he would have been sorely disappointed, because Ainbald was selected as the next Archbishop of York. So, now Ainbald needed a pallium, you know, the holy scarf-like accessory that marked the archbishop. And you had to get that from Rome. So, Alcuin was dispatched. He'd get it. I'm guessing it would have been nice if he was getting it for himself, but what can you do? And regardless, it must have been quite an experience for him to sail across the channel and travel through Francia, which was really becoming the envy of the Western world. And now the kingdom of the Franks extended through much of Alcuin's travel. As you might remember from earlier episodes, Charlemagne had already conquered the Lombard Kingdom, meaning most of Italy. So it might have seemed like the whole world was coming under Charlemagne's control. And then, Alcuin finally reached Rome, which he probably saw as the center of the world. And while there, he likely heard a great deal about this Frankish king, who was patronizing the church and bringing Lombard scholars into his court with the intent of turning it into a center of learning. Charlemagne appeared to want to modernize and reform the West, and he was also pretty friendly with the church. 
He must have been quite popular. Overall, it must have been a hell of a trip for Alcuin. And then, on the way back to Northumbria, life decided to crank it up to 11. Because as he was traveling through Parma, he met Charlemagne. Now, I've been starstruck in my life. I've met people I deeply admired and have turned into a gibbering idiot. For example, once I met the real-life technical sergeant Donald Malarkey, the guy from Easy Company, which is what Band of Brothers is based on. Anyway, I met him, and I was so overwhelmed that I thought I was going to either pass out or burst into tears. And I'll never forget this, but his response was, It's okay, son. And I wasn't a kid. I was in my 30s. I mean, Starstruck didn't even begin to touch it. I completely lost my shit. But I've never met anyone as famous as Charlemagne. And in a single trip, Alcuin had gone to Rome, retrieved a pallium from either the Pope himself or from his entourage, and then ran into Charlemagne. And I wonder if some point Charlemagne said, Come toi, Mangar. I mean, this was Charlemagne. But before you assume that this would have been like a meeting between a bumpkin and a sophisticated noble, it might have been a great deal more complex than that. Alcuin was well-traveled and educated. Not only that, but his version of Latin would have been free of slang, as he was a native speaker of English, and he had to learn Latin in school, similar to how some of the purest Latin spoken in Britain during the Romano-British period was by Brits because they didn't speak it as a first language. Consequently, as Alcuin and Charlemagne exchanged pleasantries, he very well might have sounded incredibly posh to Charlie's ears. Whatever the case, though, Charlemagne was really impressed by this Northumbrian monk, and he quickly requested that Alcuin join his court. Naturally, Alcuin had his duties to take care of, and he needed to return the pallium to York. But once that was done, so sometime in 781 or 782, he returned to Francia and began teaching the royal family, including Charlemagne himself. Not only that, but he reintroduced texts that were unstudied for centuries, including Bothius and Priscian, which were very important for their attention to logic and speculative thought. He also helped draft important statements of royal policies and produce a Bible at Charlemagne's request and influenced continental religious observances by introducing the continent to votive masses and the singing of the creed and encouraging the observance of All Saints' Day. In fact, it wasn't long before Alcuin and Charlemagne's court in general acquired an impressive reputation for scholarly work. People were sent great distances to be taught by him, and he trained many of the high-ranking clergy of the next generation. Alcuin was one of the big lights of this era, and some scholars argue that the growing gulf between Latin and Romance vernaculars was exacerbated by the number of students who were growing accustomed to Alcuin's careful Latin pronunciation. That's amazing. When we talk about the late 8th and early 9th centuries, it's often a talk of just Charlemagne. It typically sounds like there's this superhuman Frankish monarch who changed everything, and that the rest of the world was just running to catch up. But here we have a Northumbrian monk, not even an archbishop, just a monk, radically changing the landscape of Western education, and possibly even influencing the development of Romance languages. Not only that, but earlier in this episode, we talked about King Offa engaging with the rest of the world and reforming the debased English currency, a reform that some scholars believe predated Charlemagne's own reforms. Britain was getting involved on the continent. 
and Alcuin reinforces the story of British contributions to the church on the continent. In many ways, he's continuing the tradition of Celtic Christian missionaries, spreading new ideas and elevating the importance of education. And here's how ingrained this engagement with the continent was. No one after 750 is known to have written a life of an English saint who stayed in England. After that date, all of the English saints went abroad. This is not the backwards and isolated island you were taught about in school. But let's end this episode with a bit more about Offa, since he is the linchpin of this series of episodes. So, something was going on along the western border of Mercia. But it isn't clear exactly what the issue was. Though, it wasn't good. And we're told that in 784, Offa led an expedition into an unnamed part of Wales, and, I'll use their words here, he oppressed them. This is important because there are convincing arguments that the continuing issues with the Welsh kingdoms on his western border might have been why Offa just didn't have the energy or the resources to focus on subduing all of the southern English kingdoms. If he was constantly in conflict with the Welsh, that would certainly be a distraction. Not only that, but it might have also led to a major public works development that could have been created at this point in history and it really should be listed as one of the wonders of the world. Offa's Dyke. So hopefully, what you're seeing here is that the English kingdoms had power of their own. And next week, we'll talk about how they carried out one of the greatest construction projects of the Middle Ages, and how they were powerful enough to deal directly with Charlemagne, and how the increased contact between Francia and Mercia, along with the growing feud between Mercia and Canterbury, led to the Pope getting a serious case of the heebie-jeebies. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of it at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening.